before God's word is read and preached, let's, let's pray. And I want to ask you to plead with God. Plead with God now to ensure that your heart is not callous and your ears not, as I'm going to talk about today, sermon-proof, but that he would speak into the depths of our soul the truths of his precious word. Let's go to him in prayer once again. God, there are many voices that cry out to us, oftentimes none louder than our own. We are so quick to seek our own agenda, to want to build our own kingdoms, to be unyielding even when your word confronts our lives, and we know it. Father, soften our hearts that we may hear your word and that we may live by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Take out your copy of God's word and turn with me to Revelation 3. There's a copy of the scriptures in your row. Uh, if you don't have one, take one of those. You'll find our text on page 1030. Now, if you do not have a Bible, or maybe you have one, but it's a harder version to read, the language is, is maybe difficult, please take the copy of your, uh, that's in your row home with you. We would be absolutely delighted for that to get used uh, day after day. Now, over the past couple of months, we've been looking at the seven letters from the Lord Jesus through the pen of the Apostle John to these seven churches in an area known as Asia Minor. Now, each of these churches are imperfect churches, and yet despite the imperfections of these churches, there's been at least something in every church that is commendable, that's worthy of, of imitating. And so Ephesus, their doctrinal passion, is worth our imitation. Smyrna's steadfastness is worth our imitation. Philadelphia's faithfulness, which we saw last week, is worth our imitation. All six churches have had something commendable. But today we come to the seventh letter, the seventh church, the church at Laodicea, and we are going to see a church that is not to be imitated. It's bad. It's really bad. I almost named this sermon Letter to a Really Bad Church. But I, I decided to title it Letter to an Unfaithful Church. If you were here last week, the letter to Philadelphia was a letter to a faithful church. This week, it's letter to an, uh, an unfaithful church. The, the church at Laodicea was lukewarm. There was no zeal for Christ, no passion for worship. People showed up, they did what they were told, they went home, and it made no difference in their lives. It's a really big problem. And the biggest part of the problem was the church at Laodicea had no idea that they had a problem. All the symptoms were there, and yet they paid it no attention. With that as our background, let's turn our attention now to God's word, Revelation 3, starting at verse 14. This is the word of Jesus himself. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God has endured and will endure forever. I have reached the age where I now see the merit of going to the doctor annually for checkups. I didn't see the value in that for a very long time, but I hit 42 this year and things just started breaking. And and so I go and I explain to the doctor whatever the various aches and pains and problems are, and he says to me something I already know every time. He just says, Alex, you're getting old. That's just what happens. I know, Doc. But I want you to imagine going to the doctor, and he starts asking you the battery of questions that you always get. And you say, listen, Doc, everything's great. I am, I am in the prime of my life. I'm in great shape. And, and you wait for the doctor to say, yes, you are a prime physical specimen. But the doctor looks over you, looks at your blood work. Concern covers his face, and he says, we need to get you to the hospital right now because you are deathly ill. Now, you might be tempted to say, I'm going to need a second opinion on this. Just look at me. In our text today, Jesus gives Laodicea a grim diagnosis. He's saying here, you, church, you think you are a picture of spiritual health, but you are actually on death's door. You are in great danger. Now, undoubtedly, they're going to want a second opinion. Is he paying attention to us? You know, this comes right after Philadelphia's letter would have been read. Philadelphia was a small church. Nobody thought a whole lot of them, but they actually got the the strongest, the highest praise from Jesus. And so Laodicea was probably expecting, you know, if they're doing good, we're doing great. He must have saved the best for last now. And then Jesus says, you are on death's door. And you have to imagine they were thinking, he must be crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I think that's why Jesus, back in verse 14, gives his credentials. You've been to the the doctor and you see their, their certificates on the wall showing their diploma and showing where they've been licensed and all this stuff. Jesus says, the words of the amen the faithful and true witness. That word amen, it it means for something to be certain or immovably true. Jesus would often say this in the Gospels, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, without a doubt, this is absolute truth. See, Jesus can call himself the amen because he himself is absolute truth. You and I, we can make subjective assessments. We have opinions. We may even have expert opinions. And we use them all the time about people and places and churches and all of that. 
it's based on our opinion, we can get it wrong. But Jesus doesn't speak in opinions. Jesus speaks in words of absolute truth. And so if they were apt to question him and say, we want a second opinion, he says, no, I am the amen. I am the last word. And and if they were still going to question him, he gives them even more information saying, I'm the faithful and true witness. You've seen a situation where there's been an accident or a crime's been committed and witnesses are interviewed and one witness tells one story and another witness tells a different story. And it's not necessarily that they're lying, but they're looking at it from different perspectives. They saw it from different angles. Jesus, in saying he's the faithful and true witness, he says, I see everything from every angle. I see past the veneer of your hypocrisy, Laodicea, all the way to the heart. And that's what concerns me. No one of the seven churches had a higher opinion of themselves than the church at Laodicea. And no one was in worse condition or was more mistaken about themselves than the Laodiceans were. Now, things are grim, but they're not completely hopeless. And as we look through this passage, we're going to see first the problem. Second, we're going to see the prescription. And third, we're going to see an astounding promise. And I'll give you a, a clue about that. Jesus is going to make a promise to lavish his grace upon these lukewarm Christians if they will repent. It's amazing that Jesus would do that. We have to start with a problem. The good news doesn't matter till we know the bad news. And so we start with a problem. With the previous six churches, Jesus commended them for something, even if they were a train wreck otherwise. And some of us were taught, uh, if you can't say nothing, uh, something nice, don't say anything at all. Jesus has said something kind to each of the churches, but he comes to Laodicea and he does not say one favorable thing about the church. Now it's interesting, other churches, they had problems with heresies that were creeping in. That's not the case here. Jesus doesn't say anything about heresy. The problem was they were lukewarm. That that was really the great offense of the Laodicean church. Now, to understand lukewarmness, we need some context, some historical context. Laodicea, as a town, had no source for their own water. And so there was a series of aqueducts that brought the water to the city from other places. Water was always one of the difficulties of life in Laodicea. And so there was a nearby town, Colossae. Colossae was known for wonderfully cool water. It came out of the well, and it was, it was wonderful. It was refreshing. Cold, is, is, cold water is delicious. It prevents germs. Well, there was another town, Heropolis. It had hot springs that were believed to have medicinal properties. You know, water is useful when it's hot. It's good for bathing. It soothes sore muscles. Hot water is good for disinfecting. It's good for brewing coffee. It, heat keeps the germs from forming. But the Laodiceans had no local water source, and so what happened is the water came to them through this series of aqueducts, and by the time it got to them, it was neither hot or cold. It it didn't taste any good. Jesus says, just as your water doesn't taste any good, Laodicea, that's the flavor you leave in my mouth. How does one become lukewarm? Well, you can fix a bowl of hot water, You can fix a bowl of boiling water. You leave it out for an hour, and it's going to become room temperature. It adapts to the ambient 
environment. Lukewarm people are those who, though they may profess outwardly to be Christians, they have become conformed to the spiritual chilliness and apathy of the world around them. You know, that is the very opposite of what happens when God is at work in somebody's heart. Just think for a moment, in Luke 24, we studied this a little over a year ago, Luke 24, Jesus is resurrected. He encounters two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they are dejected. They are discouraged. They know what's happened. They, they don't know uh, for themselves the fact of the, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And so they encounter this man. They don't realize it's Jesus. They're walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus begins teaching them the scriptures, explaining to them about his death and resurrection. And after he's gone, they say to one another, were not our hearts strangely warmed within us? See, that's, that's what happens when you encounter the gospel personally. It, it melts off the thaw of religious formalism and going through the motions, and it warms your heart. Now, I, I don't think it was... I think probably the Laodiceans used to be that way. There was likely a, a warm love for Christ once upon a time, but what's happened through the years is now they are far more concerned with worldly wealth than spiritual health. And they've become apathetic. They've become indifferent towards the Lord Jesus. You know, this happens so slowly, doesn't it? It happens slowly individually, where our zeal just wanes, and it can happen slowly in a church. It's so slow you don't notice it. We often use the, the frog in the kettle analogy, that if you throw a frog into boiling water, he'll hop right out. But if you throw him into room temperature water, and then you warm it, and then you heat it, then you boil it, the frog doesn't realize it, and then he'll, he'll just die in there. And that's what happens in churches so often. It, you don't even realize that you've grown lukewarm. You, you don't even realize that love for Christ has waned. It's grown cold. We've said this again and again, and I hope you get this from this, these seven letters. The greatest threats to the church are not out there. The greatest threats to the church come from within. We saw that with false teaching. We see that with, with lukewarmness, and it happens so gradually that nobody notices until it's too late. But Jesus notices. And he speaks here in no uncertain terms in verse 16. Look at it. Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word spit out, it's the Greek word emeo. Some of you, if you're doctors or nurses in the medical field, you know what an emetic is. Emetic is a medicine that's designed to produce nausea and vomiting. It, it comes from the Greek word spit out, to throw up. You know, you've had an interaction with somebody before, one that wasn't good, and maybe you thought, it left a sour taste in my mouth. You know, the church ought to be a sweet flavor in the mouth of Jesus Christ. We'd all like to think of ourselves as a sweet glass of wine or a giant gulp of Diet Dr. Pepper. Not smelly, stinky chunks of bile coming up. And I know that's offensive. I know that's disgusting. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to say here. 
the taste of you. I can't get it out of my mouth fast enough. Jesus is really saying, I cannot stand this church. These are hard words. I I don't mean to sound pessimistic about the state of the church in America, but I would be willing to bet that the average churchgoer in America has no idea that anything disgusts Jesus. They just think of him as a gentle, long-haired guy, kind of looks like a hippie, who sits on the front porch of heaven. He watches the events of earth unfold, and he kind of smiles and says, boys will be boys. Do you know what disgusts Jesus? Apathetic, lukewarm, half-hearted Christianity. I use that term half-hearted because you're familiar with it, but if we're really honest, half-hearted Christianity is not biblical Christianity at all. Jesus Christ is either worth everything or he is worth nothing. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Now, if he's a liar or a lunatic, you ought to want nothing to do with him. And if he is the Lord, then he's worthy of everything. Everything belongs to him, including your life. He's worthy to be worshipped and served with our whole soul, our entire mind, all of our strength. In other words, any iteration of Christianity that teaches that Jesus is worth a little, that he can fit into the fringes of your life, but not take over your life, is a false gospel. When it comes to our daily lives, Jesus is not Lord at all until he is Lord of all. Half-hearted Christianity isn't Christianity at all. It's a false religion, just like Islam or Buddhism. And yet, it seems to have become the official religion of Laodicea. That's the problem. And I will tell you personally, it is one of the hardest things in the church to address, or perhaps in your family, or perhaps in your own heart. We all know people like this. Maybe, maybe it's us. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's you. But we all know people like this. Maybe it is some in this room, grew up in the church, maybe still in the church. Don't outwardly hate Jesus aren't anti-Christianity, haven't professed to reject the faith. There's just nothing going on. Maybe there once was, but the spiritual pulse doesn't seem to be beating anymore. You're not growing. You're not involved beyond an hour on Sunday. You're not praying. You're not reading your Bibles. You're not fighting sin. You're not pursuing Christ. And that is a place of great spiritual danger. Now, we might be tempted, and you might be thinking of somebody right now, We might be tempted to make excuses for that person. You know, that's just the way he is. Or or we might say that's just his personality type, not too prone to extremes. Well, the problem is the Laodiceans were otherwise a passionate people. But they were passionate about all the wrong things. And you you uh, you know that happens. Folks who you can barely drag them to church, but they'll drive hours to go to their favorite sports team event. They're passionate about all the wrong things. And so for the Laodiceans, they were passionate about their own worldly possessions and accomplishments. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Now that may seem kind of comically arrogant. Like who would really say that? But it really was the attitude at Laodicea. And we have, Jesus is actually making a historical allusion here. In 60 AD, an earthquake hit Laodicea and did tremendous damage. 
The Roman government offered assistance, but the Laodiceans were so rich that they declined any help at all. And they seem, that culture of Laodicea, that pride of Laodicea has infected the church. And so they seem to feel the same way towards Jesus. No, Jesus, we're good. We've got it all right now. And Jesus is showing they've become just as proud and self-reliant as the city itself. Now, almost none of us here, I would think, would be so bold as to say, oh no, Jesus, I don't need anything from you. Some of you will be in the next few weeks going through membership interviews with the elders, and if the, if you were, the elders said, tell me about your faith in Christ, you're probably not going to say, well, I'm rich, I'm prosperous, and I need nothing. That would be easy to spot, but harder to spot is what's going on in the heart. It's a trust issue. See, these, the Laodiceans profess to love Christ, to need Christ, but in the practicality of daily life, they betray that confidence, and they live lives of total sufficiency. That's why wealth can be such a danger. You know, the Bible does not condemn wealth. Sometimes you hear people misquote Paul speaking to Timothy that, that money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. Read it more carefully. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But money itself is not evil. So what's the problem with money? Well, Paul explains this. Look with me at, at 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 for a moment. And, and Paul's really going to help us to understand this is sort of a case study of what's going on at Laodicea. They're rich, and, and what's happened because of their riches is that their interest in Christ has just waned and waned. Look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You don't have to become poor to become a Christian. But you do have to guard against trusting in your riches. That's why Jesus would say it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Because the problem is we want Jesus and we want everything else with him. And sometimes what tends to happen is that we want everything else a whole lot more than we want Jesus. That's why Jesus would say, and speaking of money, you cannot serve two masters. The Bible tells us over and over again, don't trust in your riches. Now, it's not wrong to want safety. It's not wrong to plan. It's not wrong to, to make sure that through financial means, needs are provided. God uses those means. It is wise to plan. But we can't trust in our money for these things. It's a leaky bucket compared to God. It ought to be the Christian's desire to say with the hymnist, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance, now and always. That wasn't what Laodicea thought. They thought, they've arrived. God, we've got everything we need. We're wealthy, we're healthy. I'm kind of set. Bills are paid. I'm living the Laodicean dream here. I'll show up at church every once in a while. I'm not against that, but don't expect it to take over. I've got a lot going for me. Or, I worked really hard all my life. Now I'm retired. I get to do whatever I want. That might be the Beaufort dream. Maybe God 
If I get some extra time, I'll give it back to you. But otherwise, you stay in your lane, I'll stay in mine. There's a sickness in the church at Laodicea. It's eaten up with the cancer of pride and self-reliance. It's metastasized to the whole body. They've all become like this. You know, that's one of the dangers of lukewarmness is it brings down the, the temperature of the whole church. Half-hearted, low-commitment Christianity becomes the norm. But our Lord loves them enough to tell them their true spiritual condition. You don't realize you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. There's a parallel between Laodicea's spiritual condition and their material and societal condition. They were well known for three things, finance, banking, clothing. They had a fine wool that came from Laodicea and medicine, namely an eye salve. The irony's thick here. Laodicea, you handle people's money, but you do not realize you yourself are poor. You manufacture clothes, but you don't realize you're naked. You produce a famous eye ointment, but you are blind. See, the problem here is they're looking at Jesus and saying, I need nothing from you. That's the problem. They don't mind a convenient Sunday religion that fits into the margins. They'll come to church. They'll stand when they're told. They'll sing when they're told. They'll endure the sermon. They'll go home and won't give it another thought. That's lukewarmness. That's the hallmark of a people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be clear on this. Any form of Christianity that purports to save people without also transforming them into useful servants of Christ is not biblical Christianity. And so for anybody who thinks that being a Christian is nothing more than joining a church or praying a prayer and it doesn't reorient your life, you've never encountered the Lord Jesus. That's the problem. It's a sickness, and it's a sickness that's going to lead to death. Thankfully, there's a prescription. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This is a reference to Isaiah 55, isn't it? Which I read earlier. I think what Jesus is saying is stop your all-consuming pursuit of wealth and I want you to enjoy true spiritual riches. Stop hiding your hypocrisy by empty religious veneer and start being clothed in deeds of righteousness and mercy. Stop walking around in blindness and listen to my words that you may truly see. He's saying to them, you think you're a spectacle of great beauty and you have no idea how pitiful you are. Look at verse 19. He says, be zealous and repent. Repent means turn away from. Consider your previous patterns of life and turn back from them. Repent of your spiritual lukewarmness and half-heartedness. Jesus is saying, I don't just want words. I don't just want you to show up every week and do what you're told for an hour. What I want is, is earnestness and vitality. Show me that you're not spiritually dead. Show me that there is some spiritual pulse there. 
Do you have a spiritual pulse? It's evidenced by walking with Christ day in, day out. Not perfectly, far from it, but it's the pattern, the heartbeat of your life to walk with him. You know, be zealous here. It doesn't mean you have to be unrelentingly intense. People like that are exhausting. He's not saying, introverts, you need to become extroverts. He's not putting pressure on you to be somebody different than you are. He's simply saying, I hear the profession of your lips, but your life betrays you. You don't love me, you love this world. It's a dangerous thing to be in church week after week after week. Now, it's a more dangerous thing not to, certainly. We need to be with God's people under the word, but there's also a profound danger to being in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and becoming self-deceived so that you become sermon-proof. You hear the sermon, you may remember illustrations from it or something that was said, but there is such a callous over your heart that it makes absolutely no difference. You leave the room the exact same as you were last week and the week before and the week before that, and years of being unchanged. Jesus, in the sermon, uh, the parable of the sower, he talks about the seed that is cast out, but the ground is so hard that it can't penetrate. It doesn't, it doesn't sprout anything up, and the birds just come down and swoop it up. And so many people, perhaps you, perhaps me, can be guilty of hearing the word, and it makes no impact upon our souls week after week after week. You need a spiritual hunger so that the, when the word is preached, you've done everything you can to gobble it up. That was that Isaiah 55 imagery. And what happens, the reason some of us don't have any spiritual hunger is we are so bloated by this world's junk food. We're so preoccupied by hours of social media. We're so numbed by our constant pursuit of stuff that we simply have no room for Jesus. We have no hunger left for Christ. Jesus' prescription for the church at Laodicea is repent and be zealous. Come to me. You know, in, in terms of earthly medicine, there's not a one-size-fits-all prescription that fixes every disease for every person. Doctors and pharmacists spend a lot of time studying things like drug interactions, so they know that if they uh, prescribe this, they can't prescribe this alongside it. They also know, and we know, that we can't share prescriptions. It's, it's, a, it's a crime to give away prescription drugs. Why? Because what works for one person may not work for another. We need to understand that Jesus' prescription here is the right prescription for every person. No matter what situation, what scenario, what circumstances you are in. If you are not a believer and you're hearing the gospel today, maybe for the first time, maybe the thousandth time, what Jesus is saying to you, come to me, repent and be zealous. If you've been a believer, perhaps a growing believer with a sincere profession of faith, walking with the Lord for 50 years, Jesus says to you, come to me, repent and be zealous. If you're a hypocrite, now to some extent all of us are, aren't we? If, if we're self-aware at all, we're all hypocrites. But if perhaps your outward veneer of Christianity is all you care about, and you've never sought to cultivate faith in Jesus Christ, 
What's Jesus' prescription for you? Come to me, repent, and be zealous. This is a one-size-fits-all prescription. Come to me, come to my word, fellowship with me, serve me, turn from your sins. Let the beauty of my life become the substance of your life. Let the atoning power of my blood be the heartbeat of your soul. Let my glory become your greatest joy. You know, I, I wonder this, and you might be wondering this too as you read this passage. Were the people to whom Jesus is writing Christians? Were they believers? Were they believers who've just grown cold? Or, or were they unbelievers? They're in the church. They consider themselves to be Christians. They're visibly in the fold of God. Uh, whether they're truly born-again believers, we, we don't know. Outward signs may indicate they weren't. It was probably a mixed bag. The church always is. There's this side of glory. There will always be wheat and tares, sheep and goats in the church. But whatever their condition was, it's the same prescription. Pay attention, repent, turn your eyes on to Jesus. Do that now. Some of you are older and you have to take pills throughout the day. I turned 42 and I got my first pill box. It was a low point in my life. And some of you, uh, you have timers set on your phone to remind you it's time to take your pills again. The Christian life is just a repeated pattern of taking the same prescription all day, every day. Come to the Lord Jesus. Repent of whatever sins are twisting your heart up. Be zealous for Christ and fix your eyes upon him. Do that a hundred times a day. Do it a thousand times a day. Do it until it becomes the norm of your life. Take the prescription. Well, third, the promise. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. You know, verse 20 is often used as an evangelistic text, and sometimes people will say, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart knocking. You've got to let him in. It's not what this passage is about. This is an invitation for those who are in the church to return to Christ. We know that because of the verse before, verse 19. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. In other words, I'm not done with you yet, Laodicea. Despite it all, despite how wretched you taste in my mouth, the lampstand's still there. Even if it's flickering dimly. And so, he'll discipline you. You want to know if you belong to Jesus? If your faith is sincere, he will take away your sermon-proof ears and give you new ears and a new heart to repent of lukewarmness and self-sufficiency. If you can hear this text preached and just go home and have no difference about your life and stay wrapped up in lukewarmness, you are in great danger. This text is not saying invite Jesus in your heart. It's saying he is gracious to restore even the most lukewarm of sinners. I want to speak as honestly as I can with you, dear flock, because I love you. Some of you go to church week after week. 
You speak Christianese really well. You figured out the art of keeping Jesus from infringing too much upon your life. That's lukewarmness. And in the church, especially in the South, in the church, it can be very hard to admit that. What will people say if, if I've been in the church all my life? I've been a Sunday school teacher. I've been an elder. I've been a deacon. And I realize now I've been lukewarm all this time and maybe wasn't even a Christian. It does not matter what anyone else will say. What will Jesus say if you come to him and acknowledge that? As you come to him and confess, Jesus, I have kept you at arm's length for so long. Jesus, I have cared about the outward appearances. I've professed to love you, but I've really loved the world. I've been smug and self-satisfied, lusting after the world, but now I realize all that I really need is grace. Grace alone, grace that you alone can provide. What does Jesus say? He says, I'll come eat with you. I'll come have a meal with you. It's amazing what he's saying here. Open the door and I'll come in and sup with you, the old versions say. That word for eat is diapniso, which refers not to fast food eaten on the fly, the kind of meal that you're eating while, while doing a thousand other things, but it's a full dining experience where you sit for a long time as an expression of fellowship, of companionship, of enjoyment. And so Jesus is saying in verse 20, I am still here. The lampstand has not departed. I know you've sort of forgotten. I know your heart has grown cold. I know that, that, that you consider yourself rich and you don't think you need a thing, but you do, and you need to realize it right now that your pseudo-Christianity will not save you, and I am at the door ready to feast with you. It's an amazing picture of his grace. He says it to Laodicea, and he says it to us. It's not just the drug-addicted, wicked sinner, the prostitute on the street who needs grace. It's you and me, too, every single day. More than we can imagine, and his grace is more sufficient for us than we could ever hope. I think that the world would find it shocking that Jesus would say to a church of people who profess to be his followers, I spit you out of my mouth. But no Christian should be surprised about that. What shocks us, the real shock of this passage, is that he would invite hypocritical, lukewarm, apathetic, worldly Christians to turn from it all and come to him. You know, not only to feast with him, but if you kept reading, and I'm not going to get into it right now, he says, I'll share my throne with you. I delight to enjoy your presence forever. That's what Jesus is saying. You get the point, don't you? I, I don't know if Laodicea ever got the point, but you get the point. Jesus is saying, Laodicea, you foolishly love this world, and if you love and cling to this world, it's going to turn your hearts away from me, and you're going to end up with absolutely nothing. But if you turn away from this world and you love and cling to me, you'll get everything heaven, the throne, the feast, even the presence of Jesus himself. So come to me, Jesus says, and buy gold that's truly valuable, clothing that's truly beautiful, medicine so that you can truly see. Hallelujah, what a Savior. How do we apply this text? 
First, you need to take your spiritual temperature. And it doesn't work to just go like this, does it? Some of you are moms in here, and the palm of your hand is a more accurate thermometer than anything medical technology has ever come up with. But, but we can't test our own temperature like that. You can't really tell if you have a fever, but you can take your temperature. Look at verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's how you take your spiritual temperature. How is the Word of God transforming me? How is, not how did it 25 years ago, but how is the Word of God transforming me? Is it bearing fruit week after week, or is it falling on deaf ears? Pastor sounds kind of like Charlie Brown's teacher. Do the birds pluck it up before it can take root? Do the cares of the world choke it out before it can sprout up? If the word of God is not bearing fruit in your life and transforming you, you are a lukewarm Christian at best, or you may not be a Christian at all. But either way, take your temperature, then take the prescription. Repent, be zealous, come to Jesus. A word to those of you, though, who are living this out daily. Some of you have very tender consciences and you love Christ, but sometimes you see sin or you hear a question like that, is the word of God bearing fruit in your life? And you say, well, not as much as it should be. And of course, all of us would say that. But you think, how have I not made more progress by, by now? I think I love Jesus. I want to grow. I take his word seriously. Well, be encouraged. If you are fighting sin and pursuing holiness, you're still alive. But if sin rests in your heart, if lukewarmness reigns in your heart, and that doesn't concern you, that's when you need to be afraid. Second application. If you love your church family here at First Scots, guard against lukewarmness. One of the things that I've said every sermon of these seven sermons is that we want to be a church that is faithful till Jesus returns. Laodicea became a lukewarm church, and we know from history that that church eventually died out. Even today, according to the best statistics I could find, you can count how many Christians there are in Laodicea on two hands. The church is dead lukewarm churches always die maybe not immediately but eventually and so churches that a hundred years ago th housed thriving congregations buildings that house thriving congregations are now being converted to apartment complexes and museums all over the world because the church has grown lukewarm and died and guess what that is a mercy from god when lukewarm churches eventually close their doors if they will not be zealous and repent, the kindest thing the Lord can do is shut the doors so that they do not lead others astray. In the Gospels, Jesus was walking with his disciples, came upon a fig tree not bearing fruit. It should have been bearing fruit, but it wasn't. And he cursed the fig tree and it withered. The Lord knew it was better for the fig tree to not exist than for it to exist and not bear fruit. Likewise, it's better for a church not to exist than to continue to go on in lukewarm, unrepentant pseudo-Christianity. Guard us 
dear ones, against lukewarmness. Not by being self-righteous and looking around and saying, why is everybody here so lukewarm? That feels good to do, doesn't it? Live your life with gospel zeal. Make disciples so that by your word and by your example, the temperature of the congregation arises so that we are not a lukewarm people, but a people whose hearts are strangely warmed within us by the presence of Jesus Christ. Let's go to him together in prayer. Lord God, we want to love you more. We don't love you as we ought. But Lord, uh, we know that if we belong to you, then, then you're working in us so that perhaps tomorrow we will love you more than we do today. Father, we ask that you would give us not only ears to hear, but the humility to take our own temperature and, and to consider, is the word making progress in my life? Am I being transformed by the renewing of my mind? And for those who may realize today that they are not believers, or that they have been living in unrepentant lukewarmness for days or for years, grant repentance that they may hear these words to come and eat with you. There is no greater promise we could enjoy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want you to look with me at hymn 649 for a moment before we sing it. This hymn was written, it's, it's, you've probably sung it before, More Love to Thee, O Christ. It was written by Elizabeth Peyton Prentice. Uh, she wrote it after a series of tragedies in her own life, including a loss of a child. She completed the first four stanzas of the hymn in a single evening and then never showed it to anybody for 13 years. But the pattern of repetition in the refrain, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee, that shows us what ought to be the pattern of our lives and the repetition of our souls. On, on another occasion, the same author that wrote this hymn said, to love Christ more is the deepest need and constant cry of the soul. When I am sad and idle, the whisper keeps going up for more love, more love, more love. Let's do that now. Hymn 649, more love to thee, O Christ.